Hey y'all, it's Luke. We are back for part two of our interview with Terry Anderson from the Tenants Union of Washington. She's the Spokane director. We uh, talked with her last week at length. If you have not listened to that episode, I really, really strongly suggest you go back and do that. For those of you that have and that reached out, thank you so much. Glad you mostly liked it. Sorry it was depressing, but that's the state of housing in our city. The good news is this week is going to be a little lighter. It's not going to be light, but it is a little bit lighter because we're talking about solutions and we're talking about the ways that neighborhoods are manifestly improved by having people of all income brackets living in them, right? So a lot of times when we talk about housing policy and we talk about anti-gentrification policy and anti-displacement policy, the framing is like, oh, the poor, poor people, where are they going to live? We have to do something to help them. We do not talk enough about, and I feel very passionately about this, and we'll hear a clip from Terry in a moment sort of underscoring it, that these neighborhoods that are of mixed income, that have people all up and down the socioeconomic spectrum, are better. They are qualitatively better places to live. One of the hilarious things that Jess Walter talks about about Spokane is that you're never more than four blocks from a transitional neighborhood. I mentioned that, I think, in previous episodes. It's true. It keeps, you know, relatively wealthy folks close to less wealthy folks. It helps humanize everybody. But in real, tangible ways, it makes for more vibrant neighborhoods. And so by installing policies that help people that might have lived in a neighborhood for generations keep their housing so they can continue living in the place they love, even as maybe wealthier folks come in to these neighborhoods. It's not just like doing a solid for poor people. It's manifestly preserving neighborhood character, but then also making it more vibrant. Listen to this clip from Terry, and then I've got an example on the other side. And I think when you see mixed income housing like that, you see mixed income businesses. Yeah. You're going to see businesses that cater to the moderate income folks and a business that can cater to the 80,000 who might want to go out to dinner. I mean, yeah. to me, it, it improves your neighborhood when you do mixed income use like that. So here's a little thought experiment I've been doing all afternoon, trying to think of what are the coolest neighborhoods in Spokane that have been desirable for the longest, right? So like Perry is probably the coolest single neighborhood in Spokane right now. But as we heard on the Ben Stuckert episode a couple of months ago, there is real, real concern that East Central down to Sprague and all of South Perry, which is part of that East Central neighborhood, there's so little housing density. It's among the least dense in Spokane can't support the retail that it has. So that retail strip on Perry relies on people driving to it. There's a similar concern with North Monroe. Lots of really, really cool businesses on North Monroe, not a massive amount of density. So how do we keep, how do we keep cool things cool? And how do we keep things alive? I will say that density is not a one for one analog to mixed income, but generally speaking, the more multifamily you have, the more dense your neighborhood is, the more people of all income spectrums are able to live there, right? Like if you have a one bedroom studio apartment, a you know starving artist or a student can live there more easily than they can if it's all just like single family, three bedroom, two bath houses, right? So which neighborhoods have been the coolest for the longest? I would say Brown's Edition. In terms of like raising a family, Cliff Cannon is up there. And then, you know, Garland was probably, as a Northside kid, the first cool business strip that I went to as a kid. So let's look at the density there. Brown's Edition is far and away the densest neighborhood in Spokane. It has a mix of like mansions that line the cliff to lots of apartment buildings, some of which are pre-war, like big old beautiful pre-war apartment buildings, and then a bunch of mid-century stuff that's really, really cool in its own way. I lived in a building called the Coronet. I've talked about it's this badass mid-century Roman brick building that I love and I still think about. There's a neighborhood in Hilliard, named Whitman that I'm not familiar with, but that's number two. But Cliff Cannon, like I was talking about, is the third most dense neighborhood. So even a neighborhood that's got more of a family vibe, almost quasi-suburban vibe, although it's one of the older neighborhoods in Spokane, because it has a lot of apartment buildings as well, and some of those big old mansions that have been cut up into multifamily apartment buildings, it's the third densest neighborhood in Spokane. And then another fascinating one that I'd like to talk about is the North Hill neighborhood. So basically like Maple to Division, East to West, and then from the North Hill, right, all the way to Francis. So essentially think of like Wellesley Garland in the area where the Garland business strip actually is. There are chunks of that neighborhood that are nearly as dense as Brown's Edition and certainly denser than Cliff Cannon. 
But there's also a lot of really, really nice single family houses and single family, entire single family neighborhoods over there that are within walking distance of, you know, the Garland Theater and the Rocket and and Brown's Edition has a bunch of single family homes that are walking distance to the Elk. Cliff Cannon's a little bit weird, but it's like I can walk to Bangkok Thai from my house. So these are walkable, dense neighborhoods where people of various economic situations live and oopsie daisy turns out there also year after year decade after decade some of the most stable business districts and as a result some of the most walkable desirable neighborhoods so even if you're you know uncle moneybags and you're a completely selfish person you can still give a shit about housing justice because housing justice makes neighborhoods more vibrant makes them more stable. I think about when, again, the Coronet is three blocks from the Elk, from Pacific Avenue Pizza, from whatever that coffee shop is called now, the LK. How many times as a young young journalist not making a ton of money would I come home from a long day of work, feel just like absolutely wasted, not feel like cooking anything, so I would walk a block to Pacific Avenue Pizza and just grab a couple slices for like six bucks. That was something that was eminently attainable for me as a young professional. And it's the thing that, you know, you could have gotten a whole pizza if you're a small family, young family. Meanwhile, the folks that live in the mansions that line Brown's Edition are eating at those exact same places. So you come into contact with each other. There is a a really interesting sense of community that builds in neighborhoods like that. But of course, as land values get more and more expensive, it's going to be more attractive for places like the Coronet, which again is an incredible building, to go from being, you know, relatively inexpensive workforce housing effectively. It's like I think I had a two-bedroom apartment and a big living room and a decent kitchen for a for a 50s era building for like less than this is a long time ago. Price doesn't even matter, but it was accessible. Now we're getting to a point where Buildings like that, which have literally been housing for normal folks for their entire existence, are in danger of becoming condo projects. And then the value of that individual unit is no longer like, say, it's like twelve or 1500 bucks a month now. It might be a $250,000 or $300,000 condo, which is just absolutely unattainable for most people. So in that way, if we don't preserve housing or think about ways to add even more density, the character of those neighborhoods is going to die without a little bit of proactivity. Proactivity? Proactiveness? Without a little forethought and planning, and then policy to back up that forethought and planning to really encode it into the DNA of our city. Like Terry mentioned last episode, we have not had to worry about affordable housing in the past because we had plenty of market-level affordable housing because of the nature and dynamics of people moving or not moving to Spokane. That is no longer the case. People are moving here faster than we can build housing for them. So we need policies in addition to a lot more housing, but we need policies to sort of lock in the character of our city the way that we want it and not in a nimbyism way, right? Not excluding people, but helping people remain in neighborhoods that have traditionally been in their family for sometimes generations. And often this includes black folks who have lived in East Central for two or three or four generations, right? So there's a racial equity component to this as well. Okay, though, a couple bits of housekeeping before we go. I'm working on, there was some good feedback from the last episode and and one, some of the pushback, and I'm actually going to work on an, uh, an essay about this, is what about the landlords? What about the landlords? What about the mom and pop landlords? What about, you know, the small hold landowners? The petite bourgeois who are just using housing investment as a way of propping up their retirement or building a little bit of wealth for themselves as a way of clawing out of the lower class into the middle class or from the middle class into the upper class. I have a million thoughts about that, and I almost talked about that on this episode, uh, but it would have been like 20 minutes. So I decided to, I'm going to do it as an essay in the newsletter, which is a great plug for you to, if you haven't already, sign up for the newsletter, rangemedia.co. If you like the podcast, you'll probably like the writing, or if you hate listen to the podcast, you will also enjoy hate reading the newsletter. And I think a lot of the people that commented are probably going to be hate readers, and that's fine. I like hate readers. Rangemedia.co is also, incidentally, 
the perfect place for you if you love what we're doing and you want to support us. We always keep our content free for everybody in perpetuity because I believe passionately that people's access to news, information, analysis, the sort of shit they need to live as active, engaged participants in society should not be predicated on their ability to pay for that information. We're keeping it free for everyone always, but that means that in order to become a sustainable enterprise, you hear me say this all the time, sorry, I'm going to keep doing it, but in order to be sustainable, we need the people that can afford to give, to give. So please sign up for the free newsletter. Again, free always. It'll let you know every time we post, every time there's a new episode. And then if you want to help us stick around, consider becoming a member. It's 10 bucks a month or $100 a year. Again, rangemedia.co. I also, I'm going to tease it. We have our first piece of original reporting coming out soonish, maybe by the end of this week, but maybe a little bit longer. We want to make sure it's perfect and dialed and amazing. So if you sign up for the newsletter, that story, when it drops, is going to land neatly, lightly, gently in your inbox. You don't even have to go looking for it. It'll just be there for you when you wake up in the morning or whenever you check your email, it'll just be there. That's kind of one of the nice things about a newsletter. All right, plugs over. Main event. Part two of our conversation with Terry Anderson, Spokane director and policy lead of the Tenants Union of Washington State. Coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Episode 27. Build a lot more homes. Part two. I mean, there are other anti-displacement yeah. policies, that, but that, that's just the most obvious one. Sure. Just cause eviction is another anti-displacement yeah. because, and, and I've always felt like just cause and rent control need to kind of go together. Seattle's a good example. They have a just cause eviction ordinance in yeah. Seattle. So if you're a month-to-month tenant, you cannot get a 20-day notice. So what does your landlord do in Seattle if you're month-to-month? They just double your rent. Yeah. It's the same thing. They right. know you're going to have to move. Right. So, um, you know, you get a little more time on a rent increase, but it yeah. really acts the same. And so when Oregon and then California later, both uh, the state of Oregon passed a cap on their rent. Uh, you uh, can't raise rent any more than 7% in the state of uh, Oregon. 7% plus the 3% cost of living, which we think is too high. Yeah. Um, okay, I think California went 5% plus cost of living. Uh-huh. Um, but both of those two states, when they enacted rent control, they also had to enact just cause because they knew that if you just said rent control, then, okay, landlords can't raise the rent, but then they'll just give you a 20-day notice and get you out of there. And then once you're out, then yeah. they can rent raise the rent and need rent way they want. Right. So there's, t- there's two ways you, <laughs> so can, yeah. you can kick people out of their house. You can literally kick them out and say, you've got 20 days to vacate, yeah. or you can just raise the rent to a point that it's unattainable for them and they'll, they'll leave, you know, it's the same as being kicked out, but it's a little softer. A- so you have to do both. At the same and time. the reverse and the reverse is the same. If you just have rent control, but you don't have just cause eviction, then what you can do is you don't, you can't raise the rent on the tenant. Yeah. So you just give them a 20 day notice. They're no caused out. Once they're out, then you can reset the rent yeah. for that unit to the way you would have. Whatever if you, you want to do. Yeah. Right. So it doesn't, pre- it doesn't prevent the, yeah. the housing stock. So they really, you really have yeah. to do both. Yeah. And, and that's why I think that uh, Governor Inslee did a really good job in the moratorium because um, not only did our evictions prohibited, but so are no-cause notices, hmm. and so are rent increases, yeah. and so are late fees. Yeah. That's how landlords get tenants out easily, yeah. are those three ways. And another good displacement, I think, is as we see some growth in Spokane, and we're now seeing the, the TIFs, those... Uh, those uh, the tax increase, yeah, that tax, yeah, yeah, which is going to in, increase some some affordable housing, um, is that you need to have some affordable housing requirements when in housing developments. Mm-hmm. So I know that the Spokane just to get, uh, granted, I think two. Uh, developers some multifamily tax exemptions about two years ago. One of the properties is not far from here, I believe, um, just on the corner of Maine and um, Division. 
Oh, okay. And that is for 125% of adjusted gross income. Adjusted median income. The adjusted median income in Spokane right now is right around sixty-five thousand dollars. And so, if you are, if you have a unit for a hundred and twenty-five percent of area median income, it means you are going to rent that unit to somebody who makes sixty-five plus twenty-five percent of sixty-five. Yeah, eighty thousand dollars, and then they get a tax exemption for that. I don't see how that's helping. Help. affordable yeah. housing and a housing development that looks like that that has people making eighty thousand dollars that live in that think yeah. of where that's located it's, that is going to gentrify that is going to gentrify yes exactly it's going to gentrify that neighborhood and so what is going to happen to the tenants that live in the low uh, income housing in those neighborhoods well it's going to become more attractive now for the owners of those buildings yeah. to upgrade and have a building similar to this nice fancy one that we've given tax exemptions to and, so, and meanwhile there's going to be a bunch of people who make $80,000 a year or more suddenly in very close proximity with people experiencing houselessness and everybody down at house of charities. And then that's going to cause a culture war where -hmm. it's going to be like what these homeless people who are here first are ruining my view that I'm paying so much for in in this building. And when the, and there's no requirement that there's any affordable units in In that that building. building. And that's the, that is an anti-displacement mechanism is to make sure that when a developer, Development comes in your neighborhood, you have a certain percentage of the housing that remains affordable so people aren't displaced out of that neighborhood. Which does a number of things. It does. It also sort of puts you in closer proximity to poor folks if mm-hmm. you're a wealthier folks. So maybe it like it humanizes everybody, makes our community a little bit closer together, hopefully. And and I think when you see mixed income housing like that, you see mixed income businesses. Yeah. You're gonna see businesses that cater to the moderate income folks in a business that can cater to the 80,000 who might want to go out to dinner. I mean, to me, it it improves your neighborhood when you do mixed income use like that. So let's maybe dig in on just cause. Like what exactly in your mind is the just cause legislation that needs to get passed? And is it going to happen at the city or is it going to go to the, is it going to take going to the state? You know, I think that we have been fairly complacent in Spokane because of the moratorium. Yeah. We haven't really seen a huge amount of displacement, although more than, I, than I'd like when, we, when I look at how many evictions across the state. Spokane yeah. does seem higher than everywhere else. But that may be because we have a really bad um, nuisance ordinance that I think that our police uh, abuse. But that's a, I don't know if that's a housing issue or a law enforcement issue. <laughs> um, <laughs> but anyway, Just Cause was, was on the agenda for a city council, I think, back in December, right yeah. you know, before the pandemic. And then it was moved to March 9th. And then uh, that was like about the same day that the whole city closed down. down yeah. But I have been talking to council members. And uh, I think that there is an interest because they know that after March 31st, if some of these state uh, protections aren't passed, we have nothing in Spokane yeah. that, that will protect us beyond the moratorium. And I think that what is concerning for our policymakers, as, and it should be, is that we don't have enough rental assistance that's going to keep people in their housing. Mm-hmm. And we anticipate, because the Congress just passed the act, what, right before Christmas? Yeah. Or after Christmas? I don't I can't remember what times are. Uh, anyway, <laughs> Time that, that included like $25 anymore. billion yeah. in rental assistance and Washington's going to get like 500 million of that. So that is going to help. And, and so my convert, and I have been working with the landlord association in Spokane in, in together jointly to get rental assistance, because as I say, rental assistance really benefits landlords. It benefits them financially. Yes. It prevents tenants from getting evicted, but the, the, the benefit really goes to landlords. And my concern is that if you get rental assistance without just cause, there is nothing to stop landlords from getting rental assistance to pay them all the way up to 
you know, current, and then the very next day, give yeah. it the 10 and a 20 day notice and get them out. And my, and I do not believe that Congress nor the state legislature puts money into rental assistance with the idea that the yeah. tenant would get evicted. The whole no, idea the whole of rental assistance is to keep them in their yeah. house. Yeah. So I think that that conversation is happening at the city level, mm-hmm. um, just because it's, we don't know what's going to happen at the state legislature. Yeah. We do have just cause in Spokane, then that's that's another thing that people don't like to talk about because they like to act like that's another communist act of some sort, but it's not. <laughs> um, it, tenants that live in tax credit buildings, mm. that live in HUD Section 8 buildings, that live in public housing all have just cause eviction. What just cause eviction means is you can only be evicted for just cause. And yeah. what is just cause? In Washington, just cause is failure to pay rent and failure to comply with your rental agreement. Agreement. Hmm. Because those are the only two causes in law, we normally add causes because there mm-hmm. are business reasons that landlords may want a, to terminate a tenancy sure. that are legitimate business reasons. Um, and so those are added in as just causes. Okay. So if you're going to sell your property, you just have to, in Washington, I think you have to provide 120 days notice to the tenant that you're going to be selling your property. Hmm. So okay. you just extend the notice period, but there is a cause attached but it's a business cause if you're going to have a substantial remodel where you need to vacate the premises uh, that's not one of our favorites, but uh, yeah. I under, we understand that landlords are in business and, yeah. and they will may need that time to do that kind of a remodel. So that would be added as a business cause. And pretty much I think that is what it what they have been. Here, the, here's what the deal is about Just Cause in Seattle. has had the ordinance longer than anybody. Hmm. Uh, Seattle passed Just Cause in 1981. Oh, wow. But... I believe it was around in the 90s or maybe even early 2000 that they were sued. The city of Seattle was sued for just cause and they won in that lease renewals are not included in just cause. So there's a huge loophole in Seattle's just cause ordinance. Um, so if so you, you sign a year lease as a renter and at the end of that year, the landlord can be like, oh, sorry, I got to raise rent. Or, or, or no, you're out of here. Or you're just out. Yeah, yeah. you're so out. So you can you can just so a, a landlord can just opt to not renew. The exactly. Leads. Okay. And they'll send you notice of non renewal, which is something that we have been seeing a lot of in Spokane lately. Mm-hmm. And I, and I don't think it's because of just cause. I think it's because landlords want to raise the rent, yeah. and they are not offering leases because they want to raise the rent, yeah. which is another concern of ours. If after the pandemic and you're all whole and now your rent's raised $100 a month and you're now at half capacity because you didn't get all your hours back that you were working, um, then that's going to be a problem. So Uh there there actually is a state bill that's being introduced um, that will prohibit rent increases for six months after the moratorium ends. Yeah, that seems necessary, Mm -hmm. doesn't it? Mm -hmm. So... uh, you also talked about equitable upzoning. Can you describe what that is? Because I wasn't even familiar with that at all. So what is it? We are a member of uh, Right to the City and Homes for All, and we work with national organizations and have worked with Policy Link, and they, they've developed a whole uh, process of development without displacement. And one of the tools they use is what they call, it, well, it's either called equitable zoning or inclusionary zoning. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, and inclusionary zoning, again, that that is where that any new developments would require a certain percentage percentage of affordable housing. Okay. Um, I, I, and that's what I think we need in Spokane. Yeah. If we're, if we're getting to a point where, yeah, there are thousands of people moving here a month and we're thinking about housing, something like equitable upzoning would be a really good incentive. Cause at some point yes. there is going to be a market incentive to maybe build, you know, those multi-unit condos or whatever that look a little bit like what we see in Seattle. Um, especially in neighborhoods like Perry, where everybody wants to live in Perry, but there's a limited number of houses in Perry, whatever. So there will be a, there will be a market push to probably increase density well, at some point. And, and Mort Monroe, look, absolutely. I mean, I love North Monroe now. It's great. Doesn't it just look 
perfect it's for such, yeah. some good corridor, dense housing. Absolutely. I mean, you look in some of the neighborhoods in Seattle where you see shops and then a, a housing on top and in, and they're vibrant neighborhoods. I just think, I just long for that in Spokane. Yeah, and and absolutely. I look at North Monroe and I just think that that's a really good location for East Sprague. I mean, the the thing about I think in Spokane is that we we haven't ruined our city quite yet, like no, Seattle it's has. Great. It's you a know? great city. Yeah, I don't want to look like Seattle. The other thing that we could do in Spokane is we do have awful large lot sizes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, and I would like to see more the the auxiliary dwelling units mm-hmm. because we have such a large lot sizes. Yeah. We could get creative with that too and make some really cute little housing development well, areas. And I mean, I went to Gonzaga and they landlords are already doing that over in the Logan neighborhood where they basically put like a sixplex in the backyard of a bungalow. And so it's like, it's already been done. Yeah, Uh, It's usually for student housing. Your point that you made a little bit earlier ties into this so nicely is like North Monroe and Ben actually mentioned this too. It's like North Monroe's great. Everybody that goes to North Monroe right now, or a lot of them drive there. I was just there this week because my my parents live up north. It's like kind of equidistant. We got a coffee from Ladder and then walked around Corbin Park. And it was like people were showing up to Monroe, but they were all driving to get there largely. And imagine, yeah, like you're saying, if, if three or four lots off Monroe right behind, say, Vessel or Kingsley and Scout or something, there started being these, you know, 10, 20 unit apartment buildings or, or condos or a mix of, you know. That neighborhood has everything it needs to be walkable. It just needs more people. But the, my worry is that it it could be gentrified badly. And if we did the right things yes. early on, we could keep that mixed right. income culture. I mean, right. Brown's Edition has it. Everybody likes to use Brown's Edition as yeah. our example. We That same vibrancy could be in so many yeah. other parts of our city, and it would be so cool. I mean, really. I had a $500 attic apartment in Brown's Edition when I was in, like, right out of college. And that seems like they're fewer and far between. But there is still that mixed income vibe to to Brown's Edition. And that's why I think you can have a restaurant like The Elk, an amazing, you know, fine dining restaurant like Italia Trattoria, and then, like, a little pizza joint around the corner, which is, like, that's... I don't always, I mean, I actually probably would eat Italia Trattoria every night if I could afford it, but like convenience isn't just a luxury. It's just like sometimes like, God, I had a long day. Do we want to just grab the kids and get a couple slices of pizza and just call it so we don't have to cook tonight, right? And even if, whether you're poor or whether you're rich, I think you should have access to every once in a while, like a little pressure valve that's like, I don't have to cook tonight, you know, and that requires living in neighborhoods that have accessible housing so that people, you know, at all ends of the economic spectrum can be close enough to just do that. Right. And it would encourage more small businesses that great pizza makers could be out there sharing their great stuff and not, you know, like having to work at Domino's or something like that, you know? (laughs) Totally. And it, it strikes me that like redlining and those ideas, in addition to just being horrifically racist like there was an idea that what they were trying to create were little enclaves of wealth where like exclusive places where people could build as much wealth as possible what we're talking about here with like getting rid of that and actually doing taking steps to encourage the exact opposite of redlining which is mixed income within the same building it's not not about generating wealth but it is also about building community in a way that we don't seem to have been thinking about at all when when those racist housing covenants were being put in place it was it was all about exclusion not about community building you know and i think that the worst thing for community building is single family zoning i mean you just drive through neighborhood after neighborhood after neighborhood and you don't feel like you're in a community and i think that we could do so much more with policies that would give us community and input and so for me i think making it democratic making it so everybody that has a stake has Mm. a voice Mm -hmm. i think spokane one of my frustrations it just feels like decisions are made at some level that nobody (laughs) knows where that level is um and i you know you, you know you can you can start by making our um our city website more welcoming. I mean, who wants to get involved with yeah, the city yeah. when you look at that thing? 
We, you know, I mean, just little things like that. Like, just as I was looking through different communities and different counties and cities as they were get rolling out their rental assistance and how city. And then I'm looking at our city website, and you can't find anything. Nothing is as friendly. We we yeah. just need to make our city a resource, and then it yeah. makes it more inviting. We just don't. I don't know. I always try to say, is it the chicken and the egg thing? My other thing is I, I don't like um, neighborhood councils because those don't tend to involve too many people and keep things pretty stagnant. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of things we could do to change. Um, but that's one of them is getting rid of these neighborhood councils that are so heavy on either um, single family housing right. or businesses within a neighborhood. Right, right. They, they tend to be kind of entrenched in like preserving what they have. They often don't want to like a, a bunch of new things I've heard from oh. various neighborhood councils. And and I went through a time when we were trying to get tenants to start going to their neighborhood councils and they would just say, don't make me do that again. And I go there and they, they treat me like I'm an alien. I don't belong. You know, it's, it's the culture of our city that, you know, if you haven't been going to the neighborhood council meeting for the last 20 years, then you're not part of our group. Yeah. And so you can just imagine how that impacts BIPOC communities who are never going to be part yeah. of those institutions, right. you know. And I never really thought about it in this exact way. So the house that I ended up buying, we bought with a friend of ours. It was a two-unit townhouse. It was, being, it, was a, it was a rental property before we bought it. And it took our next-door neighbor a year to even say hi to us because they just assumed we were another renter, which was at the time I was like, well, that's really shitty of you because I'm kind of young or whatever. But then uh, it got to thinking that like, really, if we're if we treat homeowners and renters as like adversaries in this fight, it's it's really awful. And it really destroys like, you know, it's like. And I don't know. I, don't I know. know. <laughs> I, I got to tell you, I belong to the APIC, Asian Pacific Islander Coalition, and so uh -huh. I, which was part of the Coalition of Colors um, candidate forums that oh, right, they right, held right. earlier this year. Yeah. And I always submit a question about just cause eviction because I, <laughs> that's I'm, your thing. That's yeah. what I do. <laughs> and um, one of the candidates, and it was a Democrat who didn't win, but his answer was, <laughs> I oppose just cause eviction because it could make a tenant could have just virtually all the rights as a homeowner. I mean, they could live there forever. And I'm like, Sounds what's great. wrong with that? <laughs> Sounds cool. <laughs> they pay their rent, <laughs> Sounds cool, landlord actually. gets paid, they're keeping their place up, they oh. have a sense of stake and ownership and the neighbors get to know, you know, what is wrong with that? And so just the idea that somebody who's running for public office would suggest yeah. that they oppose a policy just because it doesn't allow a certain segment of our you know, yeah. to have the same status, I, that just blew me away. My, like, me what is wrong with you? That's why we have tax credit buildings. It's why we have Section 8 project-based building. It's why we want housing stability. And and this is purely on, a, on the answers based on the class of the yeah. individual. It's awful. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I can go on with individual stories, but another story that I always tell because it, it gives you an idea of the yeah. difference between a renter and a homeowner. And this is when I was uh, riding an Uber, and my Uber driver, a nice person, and I told him I worked at the tenants' union. He says, oh, "I love tenants." He <laughs> says, "I was a landlord." He goes, "I, I, I had a house." He said, "He bought a house, and his his tenants lived in this house for fifteen years." Yeah. They paid off the entire mortgage. Absolutely. And as soon as they moved out, he sold the house for double that he bought it for. Right, Matt. So, yeah. And so it's like, well, what did the tenants get out of it? <laughs> you know, you threw them out because now you know yeah, somebody yeah. else bought the house after the 15 years. I mean, it's just the tenant was the one that paid that mortgage every Absolutely. month. Yep. You've talked about how housing choice vouchers are currently not an entitlement. What would it take to make them an entitlement? And what exactly does an entitlement mean in this in this case? Well, you know, there's entitlement spending and there's discretionary spending. Yeah, and yeah. so, you know, every time that the government shuts down, you always hear about this. Oh, my the God. Entitlements, you, yeah, yeah, the entitlements yeah. have to get paid because those are entitlements. Um, and so when the government shuts down, 
guess what happens if you're holding a housing choice voucher oh, or if wow. you're living in a it housing? Does, like no yeah, longer. your rent might not get paid, and wow. um, and so that's just one reason that that it's a it's problematic, and yeah. and it what especially for. Um, the housing, both tax credit housing and um, Section 8 HUD project-based housing, because some of those buildings are owned by private entities that yeah. are for-profit entities, and they rely on getting paid every right. month right. because that's what they do. Um, and so if they don't, then they may they may be more incentivized to convert and convert mm. that proper property into market rate. And so then your city loses all this affordable housing yeah. um, when you have that, when it's not an entitlement and you've got politics as they've been in Washington, D.C. for like the last 20 years. Yeah. We've had how many, two or three government shutdowns. Um, but the other reason that, that, I, that I've heard the housing be an entitlement is is exactly like uh, I said earlier that when you have a need for food, you are given whatever you are entitled to. So they look at your income, they look at, you know, your, your expenses, and then you get a certain allotment of food stamps. So the way it is for housing, you're either eligible, you're not eligible, and then you get a voucher. And then you, it's up to whatever your income is, you pay 30% of your monthly income. If you go higher than the fair market value, then you can actually pay more than 30% if you want, but that's your choice, not your landlord's choice. Um, if you could do that in a way that maybe you don't need a full voucher, maybe you only need partial voucher so that you're paying 30% of your rent. So maybe you've got, you know, you're, you're working, but you're just not working enough to pay for the The high rent that's going on. Then you should be able to apply for housing subsidies that will make up for that difference. Um, I know that during the campaign for presidency there were different candidates that were proposing different ideas and some of them were that to turn housing vouchers into entitlements so that everybody that's eligible gets one that would probably cost a lot of money yeah um but it would be worth it i think if you look at it um the other thing is that we haven't really made an investment in housing in this country since what the 1940s i guess right Really, since after World War II, yeah, uh, and then if you, we actually did, you know put some money and invested it, then maybe we could make it more affordable for people. Another one of the uh, proposals, and I think that was it was uh, the vice president elect, I guess we'll be sworn in tomorrow, uh, Harris, was that there be a tax credit for anybody that pays more than 30% of their income in housing, and it be a prepaid tax credit, so that you get you know, some you get money on you know until yeah. to, to offset it. But there's different ways that you can do that to subsidize your income so that you're not rent burdened. Spokane is extremely rent burdened. Yeah. Uh, half of the like right okay just quickly about half of Spokane rents. So what are yeah. we about two hundred thirty thousand? So about one hundred ten thousand people in Spokane wow. rent. Yeah. Half of those, I think it's fifty four percent of those are rent burdened. Wow. Rent burden means they pay more than thirty percent of their monthly income on rent. Wow. So that's roughly about fifty to sixty thousand are rent burdened. Half of those, so that's about twenty-five thousand, are severely rent burdened, meaning they pay more than fifty percent of wow. their monthly income in rent. And when I was working with the tenants at the vintage, when they got those huge rent increases, yeah, yeah. there were te- there were many tenants in that building that once they paid their rent. Um, they may have had anywhere from ten to twenty dollars left over after their monthly oh, paycheck. That's awful. And so that's what we're talking about when yeah. you're um, severely rent burdened, meaning you can't do anything. Yeah. Is there a solution for wanting to sort of create vouchers? I think you mentioned this, but I'm having a hard time recalling housing vouchers that are sort of expansive enough that people could go live in other neighborhoods so that, you know, people aren't stuck in the places where that low income housing exists. So it's like not just 
Har- uh, you know, Hilliard or, or West Central or East Central? Yeah, um, we don't do that in Spokane. I have been advocating for that, and I've actually been talking to the Landlord Association because it seems to me they would want this too. Yeah. But a variable payment standard for uh, housing choice vouchers. The way that housing choice vouchers are paid now or everywhere yeah. is they um, determine your fair market value. Okay. Well, Spokane, if you just do the fair market value of the entire city of Spokane, Again, like I just told you earlier, ours went up about almost $200 yeah. for a one-bedroom apartment. Um, you're just doing a survey of all the housing in all of Spokane, whether you're in the South Hill, the North Side, yeah. wherever, and then you get a fair market value. What we know is that rent is higher on the South Hill. Rent mm. is higher in the Valley. Rent is higher in certain parts of the city, but they don't get a higher voucher payment standard. Mm. So if you're a tenant and you want to live on the South Hill, if you don't, if you can't pay the difference between the what the voucher pays and what the rent is yeah. then you can't live there so what what larger cities in Seattle does is they variable pay so okay. if you lived on the south hill a one bedroom uh, fair market value might be $900 a month where um, a fair market value or fair market rent um, in West Central might be uh, $850. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the voucher payment on the South Hill would be that $900 yeah. so that a tenant could move there and a landlord wouldn't have to lower their rent in order to accept vouchers. Well, and like a, a devil's advocate would be like, well, if you can't afford to live in a neighborhood, it's like, I, I want to live in Beverly Hills but I can't afford Beverly Hills. Why should I be able to like live in whatever neighborhood I want? Think about things like South Perry is technically part of East Central neighborhood. It just has kind of become its own neighborhood name for marketing purposes. Like, like you know, that's that's a historically you know immigrant and BIPOC neighborhood that was destroyed by the freeway we built in the fifties. And directly sort of north of Ninth Avenue, say, is like. That's a traditionally historically black neighborhood or largely mm-hmm. black. Like that's where a large number of the black population sort of has congregated. That's the neighborhood. That's the neighborhood. Now, Perry is one of the most in demand. You know, so literally you cross Ninth Avenue and you're in Perry. That's one of the highest demand neighborhoods. And those houses that were some cases like multi-generational family housing for, you know, our African-American community for the better part of 60 years are now it's kind of unattainable for folks. And so what, part of what we're talking about mm-hmm. with this variable rate thing would just be allowing people not like letting somebody move up to over by Manitou Country Club. It's really more about as housing prices like you know, trend ever, ever upward, it seems. Part of it's like just about letting people stay in the neighborhoods they grew up in or that their family's in. And I would like to thank uh, Bethel AME and Richard Allen Court. I think that is one of the reasons why that neighborhood has has still has its affordable nature. If that were if that Richard Allen Court were owned by a for profit entity, it's more likely that would have been converted to market rate, and you would see the that as a high rent, you know, market. Absolutely, uh, because that's apartment right. It's right across the street from the grain shed, which Mm -hmm. Joel was on the last episode of the podcast. Like it's, Mm -hmm. and that's part of what makes that neighborhood so vibrant it's like you get people from Richard Allen Colt or mm-hmm. spending time in the neighborhood mm-hmm. coming to Grain Shed and it creates a more diverse and interesting neighborhood and and it just like it's cool that somebody who lives in a place like Richard Allen Court can have access to, you know, maybe yeah. not every week because it's like a $6 loaf of bread or whatever, but you could go get like better food because you live in proximity. Mm-hmm. You have some of those things that make life a little bit enjoyable, mm-hmm. right? Like we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be preventing poor folks from having a little bit of joy in their lives every once in a while. That's a great example, though, of what happens when a neighborhood that gets developed, who's encroaching on who really uh, Absolutely. You know, right. I mean, no, totally. Richard yeah. Alicorn's been there at providing affordable housing for yeah. a very, very long time. 30, 40 years. Yeah. yeah. And, um, but, but there was, there is actually a building in that neighborhood that was a HUD Section 8 building that did convert, convert. to market wow. rate. And yeah. did we did displace about 10 families when that happened. And so um, I, that, that is always a worry. Well, and my wife's dad got displaced when they just bulldozed 500 units of affordable housing to build the North-South Freeway. Mm-hmm. Like that's my family was impacted by that. 
Oh, I know. And oh, those man. have not been replaced. So that's five, you know, and these were these were I family know. homes. They mm-hmm. were single income homes or single uh, family homes in, in East Central. Mm-hmm. They're modest homes, but that was where like my wife's dad's family had been raised for like two generations. Mm-hmm. Right. And we just knocked it down. Mm-hmm. It was like an eminent domain thing. So he got like access to other, but he ended up living out in the valley in a trailer park. You know, like that's not the same thing. No, it's way, way no. different. And even as as sort of historically hard as East Central's had it, that's more, more of a neighborhood than what he ended up in. It just strikes me so much that um, yeah, we yeah. do we we take these steps that sort of in the name of progress without thinking about who it's displacing, because progress always impacts those the lowest income communities. And uh, and oh, that always. North South Freeway is about to cut through right through the middle of Hilliard. So are we just going to have uh, the same thing happen? Well, again? I, I know. Well, that that's another that's a great example, really. The North South Freeway. Look at all the different designing phases that it's gone through, and as you know, and it settled into the poorest of all the neighborhoods of all the design phases. It was, it was supposed. I just read how it was supposed to go originally going to go up Hamilton. So right through the Gonzaga neighborhood mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. funnel, you know, then, mm-hmm. it, then that wasn't allowed, you know? Yeah. I used to work at Spokane community college while they were designing oh, that phase. Yeah. So of course Spokane community college, which has the highest poverty, you know, yeah. rate of yeah. all students in the entire state. Wow. Um, so it was pretty clear that that, that was also expendable and yeah. the students at SCC were expendable. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that's how it always works out. And in fact, I remember when we worked there, it turned out that, and I can, I guess I can understand, but, um, they had to make adjustments because of the golf course, but not because of a college. <laughs> But I guess it's because you don't want balls hitting cars, cars? on the freeway. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you could figure it out. <laughs> but, but I actually think that it was probably designed, you know, for a different reason. <laughs> um, but it, that just tells you, you know, how they decide things like that. So we, we've kind of talked about everything we've talked about so far are the ways to sort of stop the bleeding mm-hmm. or sort of protect renters. There's a couple ideas that might actually be more of like, articulating a future vision that would actually be really good or, you know, beneficial for people. Those are community land trusts and shared equity housing models. So can we, and these are things that I don't probably know enough about. So can we just start with like, what's a community land trust? What does it mean and how does it work and why is it good? Community land trusts are good because they take land out of the speculative market okay. and they keep them de- designated for housing. So the land itself so like a municipality, remains in trust. So, uh, but it's like a city or a community buys the land from it's usually, off the market. Yeah, it's usually a nonprofit. I okay. believe Spokane has one, and I'm okay. not. I think we've had one for a several over time. But oh, I, my understanding is they still do have a community land trust, and it will factor in with the housing levy but how that works I'm not sure the dynamics of and the tools and exactly how you know it works but yeah community land trusts are good because you can keep land in a neighborhood outside of the speculative market so you aren't seeing so examples where we can look and see uh, downtown Spokane with all the parking lots you know those are not because they're making revenue off of cars parking there they are there because the investor that owns it is waiting for that property value to get to a point where it makes it yeah Yeah, where it makes it worth it well that's exactly the same thing that happens in our neighborhoods and it happens with homeowners who Uh hang on to their homes and then sell them if you you know, if you were a really, you know, you loved your neighborhood and, and uh, you're, you know, you could take that home that your your mother, your grandmother left you and you could put it in a community land trust and that huh. that land would be affordable forever. And I think that um, Habitat for Humanity gets involved okay. with a lot of the community land trusts because they do the actual building part right. of it. So once the land is built, they can either do uh, remodels if they if they obtain land with property on it or they can obtain just just huge tracts of land and then build on on it yeah Um, but that's a really good model because instead of taking um an individual who may not you know, uh, qualify for a mortgage lender from a private bank, or they would qualify and build equity as they were making the house payments. And then they could sell that home to the next person who qualifies for 
the affordable um, right. land underneath, and 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 it just regenerates and regenerates affordable land, and it usually, I mean, it, it's it's been very effective in, for addressing gentrification. Yeah, I would like to see Spokane do that. We have neighborhoods that that could be done. It seems to me, yeah. and I think the city even passed an ordinance where access city land. It can be donated or given to the use of affordable housing, and so uh-huh. it seems to me that they could put some of those land into trust, yeah, um, and then maintain that housing. Yeah, there was just that big project, kind of, kind of near Maxwell, but like west of the arena, that was just like a city maintenance facility that looked like it was on yeah. like ten or twelve acres. It got it just sold to a to a private landowner, but yeah, like that seems like that could have become like a really cool like mini neighborhood relatively dense. Like oh, it could have been something like I, in a land trust. Yeah, and I'm thinking I've I've heard that there is land that was obtained for the North South Freeway, but in their designing they actually didn't end up using as much <laughs> land as they they had it planned. So yeah, so they Would took not people's homes. Me. Yeah. Yeah, like, and then they, oops, well, I guess we didn't need it after all. But then rather than, you know, then that land, I think, should be put into trust. a trust to yeah. be used for that kind of housing. Another kind of a shared equity housing that I think also really, like I'm looking at some other cities that have done, and that's giving tenants first right of purchase. Oh, yeah. So And then having tenant-owned buildings. We don't have that in Spokane. Yeah. And that is an option that maintains permanent affordable housing. Yeah. Tenants own those buildings. And I would like to see us do that, you know, like hmm. a tenant's opportunity to purchase. Yeah. Um, I know that when I we were in Minneapolis with uh, Homes for All, when they were going through a period similar and they tied housing conditions with how the rental registry and if the housing conditions falls below repair then the the landlord their business licenses would be revoked oh wow and if their business licenses were revoked they could not c- collect rent oh, and wow. so if they were not collecting rent then obviously the landlord's looking to sell that property yeah. and so they finally passed an ordinance in Minneapolis that forced landlords to give first option to sell to huh. the tenants so that tenants could buy these yeah. older buildings um, and then keep them affordable, yeah. obviously, and and then they maintain them in a nonprofit form. There, we have one in the state of Washington. Benson East is a tenant-owned building. It's and in Seattle. It's or? in Seattle. Okay. Um, but and that was a that was kind of a little different a different way that that was financed. But oh. it's it, it is uh, you know those are all possible if we you know get creative and take profit out of the idea of housing. In, at least for a section of the market, right? Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's that does keep the prices down. Yeah. We've talked about a lot of really horrible stuff, and this is a, a trend uh, in everything I talk about, it seems like. <laughs> like, and, and some of these are like protections that are necessary. So there's some stuff that's like more forward-looking and, and sort of hopeful. Like, we have the system we have. What, what would be a better system to build? So as you're thinking through this stuff day in, day out, what gives you hope in this moment? Well, what gives me hope is that we have a new um, a new HUD secretary and a new um, administration that I think will take some of the housing concerns more seriously than uh, we've had to deal with in the last four years. So that gives me a lot of hope. Yeah. I, I think our state legislature gives me hope because I think they are starting to see um, that sustainability and tenant protections and and housing as a human right are all the pathway that we probably should be looking at. Yeah. I think young people in this country give me hope <laughs> <laughs> because the old people haven't done a great job. And I'm an old people, so I can say that. Um, uh, I, I Young people do give me hope. I think that they've seen it through the eyes of children. I mean, like one some of my coworkers in Seattle, like when I think about it, like they were going through the housing crisis when they were probably in junior high. Yeah. And so here they're watching their homes get repossessed Absolutely. and having to... I mean, and now they're working for the tenants union. And so I'm like very hopeful that they they take those experiences and the work that they're doing and moving it forward and thinking of solutions I haven't thought of. Um, That's my hope. I feel like I, I joined the labor market 
in about 2004. So I, I got my career off to a start before the housing crisis, which totally lucky because yeah, even the older millennials who were, you know, leaving college in 08 and 09, they've had a completely different world that they've sort of come mm-hmm. become adults in. And I think it's really changed and it's only getting worse mm-hmm. in the way we've seen with Zoom, the, you know, the Zoomer generation and stuff. I guess I'm just saying I share your hope because it seems like every step of the way, I, I find inspiration from those younger people who are just like, you know what, you know, they responded to having really terrible job profits prospects by like volunteering as much as they could for random things just to try to make their community better until their their career picked up or whatever and it's really cool to hear that you're you're saying like young people are are taking an active role in the tenants union and thinking about how to change things because like ultimately yeah i think we we lived through this incredible period after the the post-war boom and then that's like coasted for our entire lives but the seeds of where we find ourselves now started in the 70s Mm-hmm. which means my entire life has been this gradual slide to where we are now. There was, a, I think, previous generations had a lot of complacency around that. And I think, you know, like, to your point, like, my grandpa died a couple years ago, and he and it made me reflect that, like, he was able to raise a family of five kids on a single salary and live in North, you know, live off country homes in North Spokane, totally modest but awesome family home. My parents both had to work two jobs and I don't see myself getting back to, you know, and my parents then like worked their asses off and clawed their way into the middle class. It just seems like it gets successively worse every generation. And so I think on my darkest days, the place that I find hope is exactly what you said. These, this young generation of kids is like, nah, you know, I still have like weird feelings about the, about the cold war, you know, like the way Mm -hmm. that I talk about the things that I'm passionate about. And it sounds like you do as well. Mm -hmm. Whereas like you, we got indoctrinated to think that like public housing was communism or something, yeah. you know, when in fact it's just a normal response to the the conditions that markets create. You know, it's like not everybody is going to win in the marketplace. So we have to take in. So then are we just going to throw those people to the dogs or are we going to like think about steps to like make a more equitable community in the richest nation in the history of the world? You know, that like where people can have a, a, the life that everybody I think deserves of just like having your basic needs met. I agree. And I think that we also have to get away from thinking that if we are expanding rights and expanding opportunities to others, that somehow it's taking away from somebody yeah. and yep. it isn't it, no. it, it expanding opportunities. And, and I, for, from the tenants unions perspective, we also realize because we talk to them every day that there are a huge amount of people that are lifelong renters that yeah. intend that never intend to become a homeowner, right. whether it be because of whatever reasons that, that got them to where they're at. But it isn't something that we need to place a judgment on right. and then base policies based on that judgment. If a person is a lifelong renter, great, then let's find ways to make policies to make that a very good option yeah. that you are not deprived of anything right. instead it's this well home ownership builds wealth and renters don't have any um well then let's find a way to build wealth for everybody yeah and make equity for everybody so that home ownership doesn't make you you know somehow separate us. absolutely let's well and let's like let's start paying people well enough that they can sort of and, and give them benefits so that they can have retirement accounts again. So, Thank you. So that the only, <laughs> it's like, this is the thing I think about. There's so much, there's a stigma around renting, but we also created the conditions. Like, again, like my, my grandpa had a pension. My dad does yes. not have a pension. I have no hope of having a pension. So yes. like there was like, well, I disagree. You should have hope oh. for that. I mean, seriously, <laughs> we've spent 40 years since I always look at this 40 years since Ronald Reagan was elected and yeah. we have really done nothing in those 40 years, but shift our wealth and been giving wealth to those at the top. Yeah. And that's an artificial creation. Yeah. And yet then we want to base our way we think about other human beings, right. you know, forget it. That was artificial. If we can artificially create it, we can artificially uncreate right. it. Right. And, you know, and it was like this too cute by half thing where they're like, oh, well, we're getting rid of pensions because that's better for the business owners because they, they don't have to pay into a big pension fund. So we'll just try to encourage everybody to buy a house. And that's where we're going to generate yeah. wealth from, which right. further helps the real estate industry, obviously. Exactly. But 
it then it then whether intent I think it's both uh, just a natural occurrence, but it's also like a very active, you know, then you stigmatize renters because it's like, oh, well, we want everybody to be a homeowner. So we should stick, you know, so like renting, right. rent, renting should be seen as undesirable because what we're really trying to do is get everybody to be cause like I have friends that aren't it's not due to their social circumstances that are they want to be lifelong renters because it's just like easier. You don't have to maintain a home, yeah. you know, like if you've got a good landlord who's, yeah. who's actually maintaining a property, it's a lot easier to be a renter than it is to be a homeowner in some ways. And oh, so if yeah. that's the choice you make, that that should be a choice that's open and not stigmatized to everybody. Um, oh, I, I know. I, I totally. And yeah, I agree with you on the, on the pensions and because it does feel like we have slid into this sort of expectation that you're a renter in your young life, you spend your middle life buying the home, yeah. then when you retired, you have no housing expenses because your house is already paid for right, and right. so your um, social security is below 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 poverty <laughs> right. and so what happens if you don't have that home that's yeah. bought and paid for by the time you're 65 ah. now you're going to still be right. lifelong paying 90% of your income on rent you know yeah no we need, we need to change it and we need to change it fast but I that's where I do have hope I think we can get there yeah I I think we're getting there. All right. Well, I, I feel like I could talk to you for another two hours, but we're getting the we're getting the hand wave that we've we've reached our time. So Terry Anderson from the Tenants Union of Washington, uh, Spokane director. Thank you so much for coming. This is an amazing conversation. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thanks also to my man Connor Bacon on the ones and twos, the man who has stepped in in the last couple of weeks and helped me edit these interviews. Uh, could not keep up this pace. This episode probably would have taken an extra week if not for him. So if you know Connor Bacon, you love Connor Bacon. He's one of the greatest people in the world. Give him a hug for me on behalf of you, on behalf of me. Continued big thanks to Speak Studios in downtown Spokane, Washington, where we record these interviews. They have a mission to help every Spokaneite who wants a podcast to have a podcast. And I tell you, nicer people you will not find. Check them out at speakstudios.com. One last thing before I go. Please check the show notes if you didn't last week or if you just want to do it again. There's a ton of action items that you can take to reach out to your legislators, the people that actually have some power to change the things we were talking about today, and let them know that you want these sorts of protections for renters so that we can preserve as we allow new people in, as we are a welcoming society, as new people come to Spokane and discover what makes it so great, we want to make sure there are protections for the people that made it great in the first place. Keep Spokane great again, folks. All right, that's it for me. Luke Baumgarten. I don't know why I just said my name. <laughs> I'm tired, guys. See you next week.